What's your name? Steve Lyons. How many years did you play professional baseball? Uh, 13 overall, 9 in the big leagues. How many years have you broadcasted Major League Baseball? Ooh. Uh, over 20, less than 25. My memory's bad. How many times have you been fired? <laughs> oh, you come right out of the box, don't you? You waste no time. That is not right. <laughs> uh, no, oh, that's hard. You know, let's think. Are we talking only in my broadcasting career or like or in baseball? Life. I got in released life. a ton of times <laughs> in life. Jeez. Uh, you don't have to answer that. First time, very first time. I mean, I pride myself on, you know, I'm like you, Josh. You know, you and I have have, have had parallels on in so many ways. I pride myself on trying to do a good job in everything I do. I, I, I had my first job when I was eight years old. Uh, I've worked my butt off my entire life. Um, I, I take a lot of pride in being at the very top of two different, very elite professions you know, playing professional baseball at the highest level, and at one point in my career, broadcasting at the highest level, basically being the number two guy at Fox. Had I not got fired from that job, I'd probably be doing World Series games right now. Uh, unfortunately, we know that that's one of my firings. But the first time I ever got fired uh, was from UPS. I was a seasonal driver at UPS, and uh, they gave me a crappy rider rents trucks truck to drive, and the transmission was messed up. It was an automatic truck, but it would always slip out of gear. So I'd be driving, it would slip out of gear, and all of a sudden I'd be in neutral. Or I'd try to put it in park, and, you know, it wouldn't stay in park. So I was delivering a package, and I parked my, my truck across the street, and the guy who was getting the package for me looked at me and goes, yo, is that your truck driving down the road? And I looked out the window, and it's like, <laughs> Sure as hell was my truck driving down the road without me in it. So I was sprinting down the road. It was weird. How old are you? Um, let's see. I was playing. I was in double A, so I was like 22 or 23. It was an off-season job that I got. And, and oh, by the way, I did flunk the driving test. But they called me back like two weeks later. They said, we need drivers, so you're in. <laughs> I ran a red light in my driving test. I don't even know how I did that. That's the stupidest thing in the world. This this is starting off well, isn't it, for me? Um, so, I, anyway, the truck, like, filed into traffic. There was a car behind it. There were three cars in front of it. It was just driving down the road. I'm sp- I'd never run faster down the road. But then it started to drift to the oncoming traffic lane. Luckily, there was nobody coming the other way, and it kind of went all the way through the lane, jumped the curb, and there was these two big trees and I thought I was going to make it in between the two trees and, and go into this really high, like, seven-foot shrubbery that was guarding a house. And it, it almost did, but it clipped the last tree and uh, broke off the side mirrors, and it got stuck on the driver's side door. Well, the other door was locked. There was no way for me to get back into my truck. <laughs> I had to crawl through the crawl space in the back. Luckily, when it hit, it knocked that that little door in the back from you can go from the cab into the into the um uh, or you can go from the where you put all the packages into the cab of the truck and it knocked out off the hinges so i crawled in there now i lied i had to what was i going to do i told them that a dog ran out in front of me and i had to <laughs> swerve to miss it and i hit the thing they're like oh are you okay is everything okay can you still finish your route i'm like yeah i can finish the route that's all they cared about that's all they care all about. they care about when i came in i was fired as soon as i got in Really? Yep. They said if you have an accident within the first two months of your job, no matter whose fault it is, you get fired anyway. But, you know, yeah, they were they were pretty much going to fire me. 
Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, we're visiting with Steve Lyons. I don't know if we can top the story that he just told to start off this podcast, but we're going to talk about life and baseball and a bunch of stuff. Steve is one of my favorite people, and uh, you know, you might know him from his playing career or from his broadcasting career. You might know him as the dude who dropped his pants in front of 15,000 or so people. What about my movie career? My movie, movie career. career. There's a lot of stuff that we'll get into over the next hour or whatever. And uh, this is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. So uh, thanks for joining me on this podcast. Before we start, I want to. This is going to be really cheesy and awkward, but I want to compliment you on two things. Doesn't happen to me often. Number one, uh, oh the socks. The game. socks. Yes. You're okay. rocking it. Too. So uh, I'll have you know that the almost the entire Albuquerque Isotopes front office staff is big in the sock game because of you. There you go. Because when you were doing Dodgers pre and post on TV, and I was doing Dodgers pre and post on radio, I would notice that you always wear socks. And what I mostly noticed was that all the girls always wanted to find out, like, what socks you were wearing that day. And at the time, I was just kind of like this generic, lame, brown and black socks guy. But then I realized that the socks are an extension of your personality. They are indeed. And so I started wearing fancy socks, and then everyone in Albuquerque with the isotopes noticed that. And now, like, we're always like, oh, yeah, well, what are your socks? Like, yeah, it's a cool shirt. I'm like the jerk who's like, oh, man, I love your shirt hate your pants. What are your socks today? Like, I'm that guy. <laughs> exactly. Okay? Yeah. And, you know, it's like, it's sort of like, I mean, I've kind of evolved even past the socks now into, like, pocket squares. And sometimes people will say, you know, your, your pocket square doesn't match. I'm like, what's it supposed to match? It doesn't have to match anything. You know, I like things that match, but sometimes it, socks kind of started off as something where it's like a splash of color that didn't necessarily match whatever you're wearing. Unfortunately, these days, they've all caught on. Everyone's caught on. Everyone wears socks now. We used to be pioneers, yeah. and now it's kind of like everyone's wearing them. I still do wear them. I pay attention to what those socks are. But, you know, socks, ties, and pocket squares, to me, you know, your suit is one thing. But, you know, we all have a blue suit. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's how you dress it up, and, and you're exactly right. That was a way for me to show a little bit more of my personality. And as you and I both know, my personality is completely off the wall. So, you know, it's going to be out there. It's, it, it's where it's staying. Okay. And so, and then this, the second compliment, and I realized as, as I was driving over here, because I'm wearing a sweater today, which is living proof that um, marketing on Instagram works. Okay. And so um, I'm, I'm driving from uh, Marina Del Rey to your place here in Hermosa Beach. And, uh, and I'm wearing this sweater. And, and I had a flashback as I was driving. You're, there's no way that I would expect you to remember this. It was sometime during the 2008 playoffs. The Dodgers are playing the Cubs. It's like an 8 o'clock start, so we're all bored. What are we going to do? So we go shopping. And we're at some store, and there was some shirt that I saw. 
And I was like, oh, man, I like this shirt, but I don't know if I can pull it off. And I told you this, and I'm paraphrasing, but you said what you said to me was something along the lines of, if you believe it, you can pull it off. If, if, you, if you have to believe in yourself that you can wear that shirt, that you can pull it off. And you were like, yeah, you can wear that. Stick your chest out. Heck yeah, you can wear that shirt. Absolutely. And you like filled me with confidence. And I bought it. I think I've worn it twice. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, I, but, I, but I have worn it more than one twice. That just makes the story fun. But anyways, um, and so to this day, I've used this as like a metaphor for life. And I was actually at the baseball winter meetings and I was like talking to like some like up and coming broadcasters. And, and I was, and one of the things that I said to them is, okay, when you walk into the clubhouse and you got to get the pregame interview, you know, don't walk down with your head down. Uh, excuse me, um, Steve, um, I'm, I'm Mr. Lyons. Um, I'm, my name's Josh. I'm, I'm with the Isotopes. And uh, you know, if, if it's okay, you know, if you don't mind, can, uh, can I maybe get uh, five minutes and, and interview? Like, no. Walk out with your chest out. Yeah. And you say, hey, my name's Josh. I'm with the Albuquerque Isotopes. Can we record a pregame uh, interview for the pregame show? And stick your chest out and be confident. And if you don't have that confidence... Fake it till you make it. And that's one of the biggest things that I learned from you. And, and, I, and I try to pay it forward as much as possible. And so I guess I want to ask by, start this podcast by asking, where did you learn that? Who taught you this believe in yourself mantra? I, I think it's a combination of my mom and my dad, but, but mostly my dad. My dad was like, you know, well, you can you, you could do whatever you want if you want it bad enough. And and my dad was a his way or the highway kind of guy, so I learned right away that you know I either needed to do things the right way or or do things his way. Mm-hmm. I miss <laughs> your dad. He's be, a good dude. I like yeah, your dad. It'll be out on my butt, you know. So, but it it's it's um it is just a confidence, and and sometimes confidence i think it's just it's either in there or it's not i think you can gain it i think you can learn it i think you can get better at it but some people just show up with it yeah. and i think i was more that believe me i'm insecure about a million things but i try to hide that with the confidence mm-hmm. uh, you know like, try to override it with whatever sense of confidence i have whether it's fake or not but if you don't walk in like you own the room no one's going to believe that you do and but i but there's things that are behind that like i say so many things that i think people are looking at me like you're an idiot what, 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 really what are you thinking i'm smart enough to back up everything i say with things that i know that i know mm-hmm. and to me you're not going to be confident if you don't know what you're doing you know, like you say, that guy that walks into the room, can I get five minutes with you? If he doesn't have five minutes of material that he's going to ask that specific guy, or if he has not done his homework to, to be impressive when he gets the five minutes, he'll never walk in there again. Yeah. Right? So I'm backing it up with information. You know, my dad told me I should have a sales job my whole life. And, and, and I did have sales jobs in my life. So I always thought that if I know the product, I'll be able to sell it to you better than anyone else can sell it to you. But you have to have that knowledge, and it's really good to have a good product, you know, that kind of a thing. And in this business, the product is you. So you're walking in. You are the product. You're selling yourself to that guy that I know what I'm doing, and I have a reason to be here. All right, so um, you were born in 1960 in Tacoma, Washington. (laughs) Ah, yeah. Uh, That is the first year that Cheney Stadium opened. One of my favorite things to do on an Albuquerque Isotopes broadcast is to say, we are here at historic Cheney Stadium. <laughs> but it was not historic in 1960 to open the year that you were born. Did you ever go to a game at Cheney Stadium? Never been there. Oh, I always thought so that I might play there. Did. I know. I thought I might play there. I've driven by it a few right. times, uh, but I was I never... It. 
Uh, let me think. When I was... You're never in the... P- well, I was in the PCL, but, but you, we never went there. Okay. I don't know if... Okay, here's what happened. I was in the P- PCL for six weeks playing in Hawaii. So maybe it was... And I'm foggy about this because, you know, when you play in, like, every division of every league, you forget, you know, where you were supposed to go. Um, but I never did get to play in Cheney. I don't know if it was... They've been pretty consistent. They've been a team there forever, right? Yeah, yeah. It's been okay. ever since 1960. So when I was in Hawaii, which would have at that PCL, I was only there for six weeks. So what happened was I got called back to the big leagues before we made a chip, right. uh, a trip to play in yeah. uh, in in Cheney Stadium. When did you move to Oregon? When the family moved to Oregon? Quite early. Well, I think I was born in Tacoma. We lived in Seattle for about a year, and then moved to Portland when I was like two or three years old. Uh, we we were in Pendleton, Oregon. Uh, the earliest memories of my life are in Pendleton, Oregon, uh, and then moved to Eugene, and that's where I basically tell everybody I'm from. I'm from Eugene, okay. Oregon, and, and you I w- lived there for the next 19 years of my and life. And you went to Oregon State, though, even though you grew up in in, in Eugene. I wanted to uh, believe me, and I, you know, I tell you know, I I'm, I get people that bash me because of this but i grew up a duck fan there's no question i did i wanted to go to oregon that's where i was oregon didn't offer me a baseball scholarship oregon state did i went to oregon state and became a proud beaver uh after a lifetime of wanting to be a duck and it was the smartest thing i ever did because oregon dropped their baseball program after my sophomore year i had friends of mine that i grew up with in high school that went down to play baseball at Oregon, they were lost. Guys with great talent, lost. Imagine trying to find a new college right before your junior year, which is when you could get drafted. I didn't have to worry about that. I went to Dodge City, Kansas, and played in a collegiate league after my sophomore year. I had a great year. Came back from my junior year at Oregon State, very settled, ended up being a number one draft pick. How did you find out that there wasn't a baseball draft? I mean, excuse me, there wasn't a uh, – I'm going to edit that out. There wasn't a uh, – uh, or maybe I'll just leave it they, they, they just threw darts at people and said, you can, you can come now. Yeah. Uh, it was not on TV. It was not on the Internet. It didn't exist. How did you find out that you had been drafted first round by the Red Sox? Great question. Decent story. My parents were visiting, visiting me. They came up to uh, hang out with me because my birthday was June 3rd, and I think the draft that year was right around then. And they were living in California at the time. Uh, my girlfriend, who eventually became my wife for 13 years, um, was living in Eugene. And I basically told her, because it was all landline then, no cell phones, mm-hmm. I said, please don't call on this day because the draft is today. And the only way they'll find me is they'll, they'll, they'll call me. And I didn't get drafted. In those days, they did the first two days of the draft, rounds one and two. And I never got a call. Never got a call. And so you didn't think you were drafted? I, well, yeah, I didn't, didn't know I was drafted. And then, like, late at night, like, 8 o'clock at night, my girlfriend calls me, and I'm, I'm already mad. I pick up the phone, what? And she's like, what? She, I said, I, I asked you not to call. And she said, but you don't understand. She goes, I, I know already. We, we heard it. You got drafted by the Red Sox in the first round. I'm like, what? How did that even happen? So then my dad, like, started calling the Oregonian, which was the, the big newspaper yeah. in Oregon. And uh, – asked and he said are you sure you have the right steve lyons his middle name's john blah 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 i went to oregon state well they had the wrong address for me so because i had moved this is a good story too i had moved because i just i randomly picked a roommate and my roommate in college uh who was from whittier california ended up being kind of a big drug guy he had this like (laughs) you know he was growing pot plants in the closet and he had like uh 
He had one of those. Uh, this is your roommate in college. Yes, he's growing pot in the closet for a while. Okay, he, he had one of those shaving mirrors on the wall. But what he really used the mirror for was to take it down and put it on the dining room table so he could cut cocaine. And as soon as I saw that, I'm like, dude, I got to get out of here. What am I doing here? Yeah. I don't do any of this stuff. So I left. But that was the address and phone number they had for me. So that's where they were trying to reach me. So the Red Sox couldn't find their first round draft pick because, because... they thought he was on a drug bender, probably. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, I love it. Okay, so I can say this because we're friends, but I looked up, um, somehow I found your, 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 your numbers, your last year in college, your junior year in college. Oh, not good, not good. Dude, you hit 250. Yeah. You had a good on base, okay, you had more uh, walks than strikeouts, your on base was 384, so the Moneyball guys would have loved you. Hit a few home runs, four home runs, 20 RBIs. Um, 20 RBIs? That's 20 it. RBIs. 20 in my junior year? In your junior I, year. And I was a number one pick? You were a number one pick. How good were you defensively that the Red Sox invested in you? I wasn't. Here's the thing. I was always a center fielder where I was very good. I, you know, I, I have friends of mine that I played minor league baseball with who, like, when I won awards for playing third base, all through the minor leagues, best defensive third baseman, infielder with the best arm, blah, blah, blah. I still have guys. One of my best friends, uh, Kevin Kane, who lives in Hawaii, was a pitcher on our team. He goes, I never liked you better than when you were playing center field because you could go get it. Mm -hmm. and, but when I get drafted, they moved me to shortstop. My college coach said, I don't have a shortstop. You're going to be the guy. I said, there's a reason why I don't play in the infield. I, I'm afraid of the ball. Balls don't take bad hops in the air. On the ground, I have a big nose. I like where it sits on yeah. my face. I don't need it exploded. He goes, I'll teach you how to do it the right way. Once you learn, you'll lose your fear. And he was 100% right. Jack really? Riley. Really? Head coach at, at Oregon State. But I went through a huge transition period. When I went to uh, uh, summer ball uh, to play in Dodge City, Kansas, which was my great year, um, I led the league in everything including errors, okay. made 27 errors as a shortstop that year. I hit, you know, 20 home runs. I had 77 RBIs and like 150 at-bats. It was a joke. Mm -hmm. We took fourth in the country that year, the WBC tournament that I have in Wichita every year. And I came back for my junior year. And then because I'm playing in Oregon, it's raining on you every day, and you stick it up, I ended up doing what I did. If you look at my college numbers, I hit like – 239, 243, 250 in my three years in college. So you had drafted based on what you did in the summer. Yes. Not absolutely. based on what you did at Oregon State. Absolutely. So the Red Sox were not crazy. Were. Well, I was never a star player, but, okay. you know, there's a – I mean, I, I think that most organizations, if they make a first-round draft pick and that guy ends up playing nine years in the big leagues, yeah. they might look at it as a success. Yeah. You know, if you look at the, some of the superstar players, they were never first-round picks. It's true. Speaking of uh, – your draft class was incredible. Oh, I can name some of them. Yeah. Joe Carter. Yep. Spike Owen. Oh, okay. Michael Moore. Mike Moore was yep. number one. Number one. Pretty good. And he screwed up. Can I swear on this podcast? Sure, absolutely. Right. He screwed all of us. Okay. Because he signed for 100 grand. That meant that everyone behind him was not going to come close to 100 grand. I was a first round pick, I was 19th pick in the country. I got $55,000. If you're the 19th player in the country, this is 1981. Right now, 1981, the guy today and the 19th pick gets 2.2 or whatever. I don't know. They slot yeah. guys now, but yeah. they use. You know, you're you're making two million bucks to put your name on, on. If you give me two million dollars right now, I'll live for the rest of my life on it. Right, mm -hmm. fifty-five thousand dollars, which wasn't a kick in the pants, but it wasn't you know what we thought because Mike Moore. The year before that, 1980, Daryl Strawberry was number one. He got two hundred fifty thousand. 
mainly because he was out of high school, so they have to buy you out of your college right. and all that. And plus, it was Daryl Strawberry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was like I think uh, so. Joe Carter, Spike Owen was there. Mike Sodders was like I want to say he was 18th, and he was the college player of the year. He was unbelievable out of Arizona State. Never made it to the big leagues, and he actually used me as a derogatory comment to the Minnesota Twins, saying, "How how is it that?" that Steve Lyons is going to sign for more than I am when I did everything I did. Well, guess what? He didn't do anything after that. Didn't do anything after Karma's that. not a good thing. There was a lot of like a, you like guys who, and I don't want to make this seem like a derogatory term, but there was a lot of like really good long-term utility infielders that were that were part of your draft class. And there draft? was a lot of also like a lot of really good players. Yeah, that came from that draft. Um, well, okay. you, you you would hope that would happen in every draft, but it's it not necessarily true. Yeah. Okay, so your first stop. Uh, after you get uh, drafted, was uh, Buddy Hunter was your manager. Yeah. You're at High A Winston-Salem in the California League. No, no, no. No, no, Winston-Salem, North Carolina in the uh, Carolina League. Yeah, that's that's High A, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's High A. You you're said California. The... Oh, I said California. You can edit that out, yeah, too. I'll edit that out. <laughs> Okay, so that's uh, you're on the fast track. No short season, no rookie ball, and you're playing at Ernie Shore Field, which yeah. is the home of Wake Forest University. Yeah, uh, tell me about your pro. Like, oh. what what's what did you think, and what was the reality of being a pro in the minors? Uh, there was, a, I mean, there was, was a tremendous sense of pride. You know, I never thought ever that I'd ever make make that I would get drafted. I never thought I'd get drafted. I never thought I'd make to the big leagues. I never thought any of this would happen to me. You know, some guys, like we talked about confidence before, is like mm-hmm. you show up saying, oh, yeah, I, I can do this. You know, there's a bunch of guys like that. I think my confidence has more to do with things that happened to me in life rather than what they were in sports. I, I, I thought it was competitive. I, I, I tried my butt off. You know, my determination was better than anyone else's. But I just still never thought I had the talent to make it anywhere. Um my first eight days in minor league baseball were a joke. Uh, I took a red-eye flight to get to Winston-Salem. The manager said, look, you just got here this morning. Sit in the stands. Watch the game today. We're going on like a 14-day road trip after the game. Pack your stuff. Be ready to go. We got beat like 18-2 to two that day. And I came into the clubhouse I have to ask you this again. I mean, what, with the with the podcast, does anything fly on this? Everything, everything's okay. good. Yeah. I mean, because there was like, you know, it was my it was my first you know experience with like with things that happen in the clubhouse that are can be misconstrued as very racist, can be misconstrued as as very like homophobic. Sometimes it can be as uh, I mean, in the it's locker a different room, era too. Yeah, it's a totally different era. Yeah, we're talking you know we're talking 1981, and. But, you know, it was the first time I was really ever around any Latin players. It was the first time I was really ever around any guys from the South. Um, It was the first time I was ever basically out of the state of Oregon. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, who am I, this guy, thinking that I can go play baseball? And and the, uh, the nastiness in a joking way was was deeply cutting. The things that these guys said to each other were hard to hear because mm-hmm. I never really heard it before that way. But they were joking with each other. They loved each other. They, they had already played, you know, together since spring training. They were, uh, I came to a high A-ball team. So they have been playing together for two months. So they knew each other. They knew what was going on. And I just heard things going on. You know, there was like four guys in the corner of the locker room that were smoking. I was like, what? You could, 
Guys smoke? I mean, what is that? I wouldn't even have thought of that. No one I knew smoked yeah. that played baseball or any other sport. So it was it was it was it was a rude awakening. And then we went on that road trip. We lost every game on the road trip. Our bus driver actually died during the road trip. Wait. Yes. Wait. Yes. Your bus driver died. He was didn't show up to drive the bus. They found him in his room dead. We knocked our shortstop out of the back window of the bus while we were driving. We used to do this thing where we were just like, hey, gang tackle on this guy. So we'd run back, four of us, you know, and I joined in. I just joined the team, and I said, all right, I'll do it. And uh, Jackie Gutierrez, who was an, a tremendous athlete and a good baseball player for a number of years with the Red Sox and then the Orioles, and then he just kind of faded away. Um, a Colombian player actually let me live with him when I played winter baseball down in Colombia. He used to sit on the back ledge of the bus. He had like a little bed made up back there. And then behind him was the back window of this bus that was from 1955. And we went and tackled him. But when we tackled him, we hit him so hard, the back window broke out of the bus. And he was hanging out of the back of the bus. George Messerod, a guy on our team, was had his, had his legs wrapped around. So he wouldn't fall out of the bus. So he didn't fall out of as the bus. He's, as you're driving. We, driving. we were in Lynchburg, Virginia at the time, so we weren't down the freeway. We were in, you know, we were like driving around city streets. But it was like, oh my gosh, you know, Jackie's hanging out of the back of the bus. And then, then, so we had to like put cellophane on the back of the bus so we weren't sucking the exhaust fumes right. in. Then our bus caught on fire because <laughs> we had this kid named Frankie Gill who was tiny. He was so small. He literally went to Kmart to buy his bats because no one would make him a bat small enough for him to swing it. He had like, you know, Johnny Bench bats for, that he bought at Kmart. What happened was his bats were up against some wires on the bottom of the bus that were exposed, and the wires started burning the bat, and the bus caught on fire. And, and so we were, in the, we were three in the morning driving to the next place, and someone sat up and said, Hey, kind of smoky in here. And then when they pulled over the bus, there was so much smoke. Everyone piled off of the bus. Jackie Gutierrez got off and ran like 300 yards into some cornfield. He was so afraid. He didn't know what was going on because our bus was like on fire. It was a joke. It was like, I wanted to quit and go home. I wanted to go home right now. People ask I me, wanted my mommy. <laughs> People ask me, why do you talk about the minor leagues? Because the stories are amazing oh, in the minor leagues. This shit doesn't happen in the big leagues. Nothing. Who who drives the bus after the bus driver dies? <sighs> that's, a, that's a good question. <laughs> Did they like bring out some new bus driver for the rest of the road trip? I can't remember who ended up driving the bus. And the funny thing, like you said, Buddy Hunter was my manager. His brother played on the team. Okay. His son used to, he came on that road trip and his son was like seven. And because we were just jerks, we, we, we basically stripped his son naked and made him sit in the seat naked for seven hours on a trip to the next town. <laughs> you know, stupid stuff like that. baseball you know? players. Oh, yeah. We are, we are all American boys. Gosh. Okay, so uh, we've already established that you had a job delivering uh, 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 packages. What were some of your other off-season jobs? Because clearly you did not get a lot of money when you signed, even as a first-round pick. So what do you do for money in the off-season? Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about this, too. I was... Uh I was married and and you know had a child already. I mean, I was uh, that's what was, it was another completely different story. My my daughter Kristen, who's now soon to be forty one, was born when I was seventeen years old. So I had a wife and a daughter. So I definitely had to work in the off season. I came back to Oregon. I worked at like a clothing store. You know, I love clothes. Uh-huh. So I ended up working at a, a clothing store for a while. 
in double A. Imagine if Lululemon existed in the 80s. <laughs> Because if so, Steve Lyons would have been working at Lululemon I've in the been 80s. Decked out too. Everybody, I'm the, hey, what do you need? I worked at Kenny's. I worked at Kenny's shoe store. I was one of their best salesmen in the history of their of their organization. They wanted me to go into their management program. I'm like, I think I got better things to do. <laughs> I worked in the restaurant at a Holiday Inn uh, hotel. Bad story about that one time where I told somebody to basically f off, even though you know it was it was. My manager was laughing his butt off at it, but then he said, you know, you probably can't do that. Um, so that was another time you got fired? Yeah, I didn't get fired. Okay. I should have, but I didn't. And then I worked, um, believe it or not, and I'm sure it's probably politically incorrect to say this now because I'm sure they've changed their name, but there used to be an organization of um, temporary workers called Kelly Girls. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah, I remember yeah, the Kelly, Kelly Girls. I worked for Kelly Girls. My sister worked for Kelly Girls for Can a while. Can you believe that? I, I signed up with Kelly Girls, and they got me a couple jobs. You know, they were temporary. You know, it's like a couple weeks here or a month there or whatever. And uh, I, I drove a forklift in the receiving room for the Hartford Current because this is yeah. when I was in AA in... Uh, uh, Bristol? Well, no, before Bristol. New Britain? Yeah, after, after, after Bristol. I played my first year of AA in Bristol. Then the team moved like... 15 miles down the road to New Britain. New Britain. Yeah, you got, yeah. New Britain. It's not, I'm playing in New Britain or New Britain. I didn't even know how to say it, but I knew it wasn't the way they said it wasn't right. Right. New Britain. (laughs) So, so I'm driving a forklift in the Hartford Current, and then I got another job at the Stanley Tool Company, which is their national headquarters, is in New Britain. And I designed boxes to put the different tools in. So if you ordered a few tools, I designed the box that it would go in so the box wasn't too big or too small or whatever. Really? Yeah, it was kind of a cool job. Do those kind of jobs, how much, I should ask, do those kind of jobs inspire you? Like, I really need to make the major leagues. Yeah, exactly. When, when you're a waiter somewhere and you can't get a guy to leave uh, the restaurant, you know, because he's like having like a little business meeting with the two other guys and we close at 11 and he's still sitting there at midnight and we've put everything else away, and he doesn't want to leave. And when you finally go over there and ask him, say, look, we, we have a bar right next to us, like like in the building. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't have to go across the street, right? there. just go to the bar. And he, he looked at me and said, well, you're trying to tell me that you still don't have a pot of coffee over there? Well, we can't get a little another cup of coffee? And then I snapped and told him, dude, in three years from now, I'll be able to buy and sell your ass. But right now, I'm playing minor league baseball, working here for $2.43 an hour. I want to go home to my wife and my daughter. You're keeping me from doing that. We've been closed for an hour. So get your ass over to the bar and have your coffee. You told him that? Yes, I did. (laughs) Imagine if Yelp existed back then. (laughs) I love it. There's there's some there's some arrogance that like you, when you and I talked about confidence before there's no way you know there's no question that I've I've tried to portray a supremely confident person I've tried to back away from arrogance I mean some people may say oh he's kind of an arrogant guy I've tr- really tried not to be that mm-hmm. person that night I was an arrogant prick and but I had a reason you wanted to go home. Seriously, I wanted it's, it's to go an home. hour after closing. It's one thing if it's 15 yeah. minutes. I mean, come on, get a clue, bro. Like, it's been an hour. Okay, so describe some of the places that you lived when you were in the minor leagues and, like, your roommate situation and finding a place. and Describe some of that. Not easy, obviously. You show up in a town. You're not, 
first of all, you don't even know what team you're going to be playing on. You go to spring training, you're like, oh, yeah, dude, I'm hoping to be in double A this year. Well, guess what? At the end of spring training, they do those cut downs, and the guy who's hoping to be in double A, who's like already starting to think, and re- again, remember, like, internet, basically non existent. Cell phones, there was no way to determine where you were going to live in that town until you got there. And I couldn't really have roommates. Married, had a child. Yeah, I'm. It's all on my own, which means I'm paying more, and I'm making. You know, my first year of pro ball, I made six hundred dollars a month. Six hundred a month before taxes. Before taxes, I made four hundred and forty-four dollars every two weeks, and sent money home. And sent money home on my first year because I wasn't because my uh, I didn't get married until after that season. So my girlfriend and my daughter stayed. They came out to visit like once or twice. Of which, you know, you have to pay for, obviously. Mm-hmm. and But I would send, like, you know, 40 bucks home a check, you know, at that yeah. time to, so that, you know, they could have more money. But, yeah, finding a place. I lived in a cottage behind someone's house one time. Triple A. You know, we rented an apartment. Tri- when I got to Triple A. Pawtucket. Not Pawtucket, yeah. but Pawtucket. Pawtucket. Uh, that was, like, a big raise for me. I was make, I made $600 a month my first year. The next year I made it to Double A, I made uh, $800 a month. Uh, the next year after that, I made $1,100 a month. You're and, rolling now. Yeah. Then when I made it to AAA, you had to make a third of the minimum salary. So I made 12000 a year that year. But I bought a car. You know how much the car cost? $12,000. $12,000. I bought a car for my entire salary. It was a Honda Accord. $12,000 that good year. Car. That was a good guess. It's a smart too. car. It was a very smart it's car. It's a smart car. car. I had a Honda Accord for a while. It lasted <laughs> Might have like been over 10 years. Might have oh, been. They, they never go away. You made the major leagues for the first time in 1985, right? Yes. Uh, you made it out of spring training. I did. Right? How, do you, how did you find out that you're going to the major leagues? Because uh, you weren't a September call-up. Like well, you didn't have a taste. You made it out of spring training. How, do you, how did you find out? I had a great spring. I, I, I had a great spring, but I did break my foot in spring training, and I decided not to tell anybody. But they called me. He called me in the office. There was about who's he? The manager? Uh, yeah, John McNamara. John McNamara. Okay. Called me in the office, and there was still about three or four games left to play, and I hadn't been playing that much. I played a lot early on in spring training, and then I broke my foot, and everyone knew that I had some kind of issue. But I asked. I didn't want to tell anybody because I, th- I thought I was going to get sent down and I'd never come back again. And then at the end of spring training is when the regulars start playing a lot more. So I didn't really have to worry about it too much. I wasn't going to play. Yeah. And they called me in the office and uh, um, they said, you know, you, you're, you're making the team. You're going to go north with the team. I'm like, what? That's awesome. And that night, which is so weird, like I did not, you know, I'm what? I'm 24 years old. I don't drink. Um, Wade Boggs. Took us all out. Me and um, Dave Sachs, okay. Steve Sachs's brother. Yep. Me, Dave Sachs, and and Mark Sullivan were really the only rookies that were going to be on the team that year. Everyone else established veteran, right? We got yeah, Rice and Evans, right, and- right, and and Armas playing center field, Boggs at third, Hoffman at short, Barrett at second base, Buckner first, Gedman catching. Our pitching staff was like you know Oil Cam Boyd and Bruce Hurst and Bobby Ojeda and Roger Clemens. You know, right field is Evans, like you said. I mean, we, we were stacked. And then, <laughs> but they took us out. And the stupidest thing was, like, I got drunk on um, screwdrivers, like, you know, vodka and orange juice. And I was literally throwing up in the bathroom of where we were before I got home. 
And then the next morning, Boggs was with us. He said, I'm too hungover to play. So they said, hey, Steve, you're playing third base. <laughs> really? We're, we're facing Nolan Ryan. We're in like, you know, we're playing Houston against Nolan Ryan. I got three hits that day. Couldn't see straight. He threw me a couple changes. I hit a fastball. And then he threw me a couple changeups, and I got a couple hits. I got three hits, and then you know basically that was it, and I wasn't going to play, and made the club, so I was happy. You were, you didn't drink back then. I never drunk, and so I didn't even know what a hangover was, but I learned really quickly. Why did you? Um, so I was going to ask this later, but we're going to skip ahead um, because this is I find this fascinating because in the eighties, people partied in the eighties. Players partied. Uh, whether it was beer, whether it was hard alcohol, whether it was coke, whether it was crack, uh, like people partied. What was it like being the straight guy who doesn't drink? Um, and that comes back to the confidence thing again. Like, I realized when I was in college that at all the frat parties, I was never in a frat. I was GDI. But all my friends were, so I went to all their parties. And I found out very early that when you're the guy standing up against the wall, but you're still having fun and you're with everybody, and someone says, hey, let me get you a beer. I'm like, no, 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 don't worry about it. I don't drink. He goes, ha, ha, it's funny. You don't drink. I'll get you a beer. I'm like, no, seriously. I don't, I don't, I don't need one. I'm cool. I got a Diet Coke, whatever, right here. The girl standing next to you looks at you in an entire different light. You know, all okay. of a sudden you're like, oh, that guy's kind of cool. Doesn't do everything that everyone else does. Mm -hmm. So it was like kind of standing on principle. And then the other part of it was fear. I knew that my whole life that my dad would kick my butt if I ever came home drunk mm -hmm. or if I ever came home, you know, like, you know, just like doing drugs or anything like that. It was just wasn't part of the deal that my dad set up for any of us. And so that kind of stuck with me for a long time. And then the other part was I knew that I wasn't a great player. I'm not going to be in the Hall of Fame. I was scuffling to try to make it. I figured all the guys that were getting drunk on a Friday night, they're going to be hungover trying to get two hits tomorrow. I won't be. And so maybe I'll have an edge. Maybe I'll you know get ahead of somebody at that point. And that was really the motivation. Was it was it weird when like the oh come on let's go out with the let's go out with the boys you know like after the game you know guys want to hang out they want to go to the bars they want to be a part of the was it did you feel like you were still one of the guys Yeah, I did because I still went out with them and I hung with them, partied with them, and got in late. But at least when I woke up, I might be tired. I wouldn't be hungover. Plus, I always bought the first round. So I'm buying the first round. So they're like, cool. hey, hey, hey. So you're getting your drink. You're getting your drink. You're getting drink. I buy a Diet Coke, whatever. And so, you know, I fit in. Uh, and you know how that goes. You're always going to fit in with the people you fit in with. I mean, there's a team of 25 guys. Not everybody likes each other. I had my group of four or five guys that I hung with, and that's, that's who it was. And they knew. So speaking of that, I, I remember as a kid, um, whenever you'd hear about the Red Sox in the 80s, it was 25 players, 25 caps. That was the reputation, right? Was that, how much of that was true? I think a little bit of it was true, and I think it was more true actually even before that. So my first year was, was 85. I think 83, 84 was a little bit more of that. It was a team, I felt like we got along pretty well. I just felt like there was a big difference between the haves and have-nots, even in the, at the major league level. You know, you'd have guys that could afford to go do some, like, really crazy stuff. They'd do that on their own, or they'd do that with the other two guys that could afford it. You know, guys like me and Dave Sachs and Mark Sullivan, we were making uh, the major league minimum at the time, which I think was thirty grand. Uh, you know, you're not getting on a private jet to go see a concert on an off day, you know, in New York City. Right. You know, so I, I think there was some fractions there uh, based on economic abilities more than more than who liked each other and who didn't. Okay. So 1985, you make the majors out of spring training, but... You made your major uh, debut as a pinch runner, but it is the 
43rd game of the season, and you still have not started a game. It's unbelievable, isn't it? 42 games, zero career starts. And then you finally start, and you hit two home runs. <laughs> and you this never shit hit is two, easy, man. And you, it's easy. And you never hit two home runs again in a game. <laughs> I You're was, the toast of Boston. I was over geeked, man. I'd I can you. only imagine doing post game Red Sox talk that night about like why isn't Steve yeah, Lyons been playing. playing this whole time? Oh, you know Boston, they're all over that. That was, you know, that would never happen today. It was in an era where, especially with the Red Sox, you know, in American League Baseball, you're not going to pinch hit, you don't double switch, you don't do anything. The same nine guys play every day, and. I mean, today, and not even today, 15 years ago, it would never happen. You know, they, they use your players. you got 25 guys on the team, you use them. You get them in the game. You keep them fresh. You make sure that when they do play, they can play. I, ha- I did have 14 at-bats. I made a couple pinch hit appearances. Tony Armas was our center fielder. If we were winning big or losing big, they'd get him out of the game. I'd play center field for the last three innings or something and accidentally get an at-bat. So, I don't know, I was probably one for 14 at the time. But, yeah, I, when I finally made my first start on Memorial Day, Memorial Day of 1985, two months into the season. Come on. Yes. I went on. My first, home, my first at-bat, I hit a ground ball to the right side of the shortstop and did my patented move. I slid into first base, and I was safe. And then I don't know what happened. I was three for five. Ken Schramm Ken hit Schramm, the first home runoff, and Ron, Ron Davis. Davis. Ron Davis, who you know ended up being like the closer for really the Yankees. Good. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. If you look at my home run list, which isn't long, nineteen, I hit home runs off of guys that you know, the couple Hall of Famers, you know, a couple guys that threw no hitters. I, you know, there was a, and the rest of the guys that got released as soon as I hit the ball. Um, so the rest of that season, you were kind of the everyday center fielder. Did Armis get hurt? Like, how did how did that yeah. debut translate to the rest of the season? Your playing time. I got to commend you too on this. I mean, you know, you you're, you're asking brilliant questions. You're asking questions that like so go along with what happened to me, um, and people don't think about that. I didn't start a game for two months. And then I got, I don't know, you, I got, what, did I get 465 at-bats, 470 at-bats? That's three quarters, that's, that, you know, a lot of guys don't get 475 at-bats playing a lot. So I literally played virtually every day after mm-hmm. that. Armis got hurt. He had, he had a bad back and he had a bad knee, so he got hurt. And then I started playing every day in center field after not playing at all for two months. It was crazy. What's... What's life like away from the field when you're the starting center fielder for the Boston Red Sox in 1985? Different then than it is today. Um, but it's still, you know, I grew up, everybody saying, oh, you got to go to Boston. That's a, you know, it's a nasty, racist, mean city. I, you know, I didn't find that. You know, I mean, you know, it still has a reputation of, you know, there there's some people there that, you know, aren't necessarily politically correct. But if you play for the Boston Red Sox, you know, you're kind of accepted everywhere you go. You know, it's a different existence than if you're just some guy who gets a job in Boston. So I didn't find, I didn't see the meanness. You know, I didn't see the racism. I didn't see, uh, I did see a lot of people that, you know, a lot of people in a small town that hustle to get ahead and to and to realize that sports is in their blood. It's in their DNA. It's not something that they just casually go, go do. Um, in any other town in the country, if you walk down the street, you'll see a variety of different baseball hats. Mm-hmm. The local college team, uh, not a local college team, a different pro team, a football team, whatever. In Boston, 
Kids are born with a Red Sox hat on their head, and they don't take it off. That's all you see. You're not seeing anything else. And, and it's an excellent thing. It is a... It is How a, much do people like, oh, Steve Lyons? Oh, yeah. Well, you, you know, you, yeah. I mean, the notoriety's there. You know, but I don't know. I, I might be more recognized as a broadcaster than I was, ever was as a player. You know, go, walking through Fenway Park for me as a broadcaster now is an experience that I never got as a player. Because, number one, I never walked through mm-hmm. Fenway Park, right. you know, as a player. Uh, I barely knew what was in Fenway Park above the stands because I never wanted to go. I never wanted to be sitting in Lou Gorman's office. Yeah. That wasn't a place I wanted to be. <laughs> so I never <laughs> went up there. Uh, let's talk about 1986, uh, specifically April 29th, 1986. Roger Clemens Ooh. strikes out 20 batters that game, and you're the starting center fielder. That was awesome. Did you have to move <laughs> the entire I think night? I caught two balls. Okay. I think I caught two balls in center field. Yeah, I didn't have to move very much. And I can tell you, my first, um, my first great experience um, playing center field um, – when was when Mike Brown, which is a name for the past, who was on the fast track to being in the big leagues, and then he had injuries. He did get to the big leagues. He, he bounced around a little bit. He was a right-handed pitcher in the Red Sox organization that came up the same time I did. And this dude was awesome. And I stood right in center field and watched him pitch. And it was like, you know, fastball in for a strike. Fastball away that you could foul off. Nasty slider, sit down. Next guy, same stuff, same stuff. It was He had unbelievable stuff. And I was like, this is ridiculous. And I have the greatest vantage point. I'm far away, but I had good vision. I, I mean, I'm seeing everything. Same thing that night with Roger. It was just like they had no chance, zero chance. Now, I don't want to discount from Roger, but that entire weekend series against the Mariners, I'm wrong because my memory is bad. But if you look back on it, I think Bruce Hurst struck out 14 maybe the night before. I think Al Nipper maybe has struck out 12 or 13 the night before that. Mm-hmm. So they were a strikeout team. These were yeah. guys that weren't – they were swinging and missing a lot. But Roger just took it to the next level and just buried guys. And if you remember, there was a pop fly down the first baseline. I believe Don Baylor was playing first, and he clanked it. He dropped it. It would have been out. And then he struck that and guy he out. struck that guy out. So it would have been 19 yeah. if he hadn't clanked it. Your old teammate, Dennis Oil Can Boyd. A few years ago, wrote a book and admitted that he did. Well, he said that he did crack cocaine basically every day during the 1986 season. Did you have any idea that not just that, but the demons that he was going through? Yeah, yeah, we all knew it. We all we all knew Dennis. You know, had issues. Um, and let me first start off by saying I will never say a bad word about Dennis Oil Can Boyd. And again, another great question because it's such a great story. The cops were following Dennis around. They knew that he was going to places um, where drug deals were going down. They knew his car. They knew he was showing up. But they were camped outside his house, too. I mean, he went through a media and, and a law enforcement uh, barrage on his life that you wouldn't wish on anybody. Dennis called me one time when we were in A, And he said, and it was like 2 in the morning. He's like, yo, Steve. He goes, dude, you got any weed? I'm like, I'm like Dennis, and you know he was ringing my 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 room phone. Yeah. There were no cell phones. My right. room phone rang. Hey, what's going on? It's two in the morning. I said, Dennis, you don't you know I don't smoke pot. He's like, oh, geez, you know, I have never gone to bed stoned if I wasn't stoned in the last you know ten years of my life. Never, and I'm got, I've got nothing. I don't know where to get it. I'm like, Dennis, you know it's not me, man. <laughs> but I can tell you what, Dennis Oil Cam Boyd, number one, took the ball every fifth day. 
and gave you his best effort, whether he was good, bad, or indifferent. He, he was good way more than he was bad. Mm-hmm. He had flair. They tried to calm that down because that was the 80s where he, it wasn't cool to be, like, showing up the other, mm-hmm. the other team. Today he would be awesome. Yeah. People would love him. He was one of my favorite players as a kid, just because of the nickname, and then you like every once in a while you'd see him on this week in baseball, yeah. and you'd see like the swagger and just the way that he composed himself on their mound. And you're like, man, I love this dude. He loved being out there, and from his wrist to his fingers was must hung down about ten inches. It was just he had this long fingers and a, a wrist. But let me tell you what he said what, during that same season. You know, Armis was our center fielder for the most part, especially in '86 when he came back, and he was and he was healthy. And uh, he was the starting center fielder. When Dennis pitched, he used to go into McNamara's office and say, I want Steve Lyons playing center field when I pitch. Really? And, and, and McNamara would say to him, Armas hit 43 home runs last year. How do you not want Tony Armas playing center field? He's your offensive you know, juggernaut in the middle of that order. He said, because Steve Lyons will run through an effing wall to catch a ball if I give up a hit. Mm-hmm. And I was like, dude, that's all I need to hear. That's all I need to know. About Dennis Oil Camboyd. That's awesome. That is. You got traded that year, though. Yes, um, I did. <laughs> you got traded for a Hall of Famer for Tom Seaver. Oh, yeah. How do you find out that you've been traded for Tom Seaver? Wow, I'm telling some stories that probably shouldn't be out there. I got, I got called. I got called at. at how are you doing? All right. I got called at one o'clock in the morning. Um, By the way, Steve was just saying hello to his neighbor. That, that's what that was all about. <laughs> well, you know, we're sitting on the deck in Hermosa Beach, yeah. sun shining, two blocks on the beach. It's a good place. Yeah. I got called in one in the morning from uh, John McNamara, and I'm sure John had had a few at the time. And uh, the trade went down late, I guess. It, was, it wasn't necessarily a trading deadline date. I think I got traded like June 29th. Seaver, from, from my research, Seaver wanted to be closer to his home yes, he in, did. in New England and was basically threatening to retire. So he yep. was trying to get traded to the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Red Sox pu- finally pulled the trigger. And the Yankees and Red Sox, obviously the, the class of the division in the East, and everyone at that time was saying whoever gets Seaver will win the division. I'm not sure if that's necessarily true because when the trade was made, I believe we were nine games in front. Yeah, you guys had a place. good lead. We had a good lead, and then I went to the White Sox. Now, I thought the trade was going to be fine for me because, I, again, I wasn't playing very much, and I kind of thought that it was a deal where they wanted me. I had heard in spring training – that the White Sox wanted to trade for me. And Tony La Russa was the manager, and he was a guy that I wanted to play for because he was more of a National League manager. He did use his guys. He used his players. And the Red Sox at that time said no, and they offered Armas, and the White Sox said no. So we were stalemate until the 29th, until the Red Sox said, we need to do something. Lions isn't playing. What do we care? So they, they pulled the trigger on that deal. Now, I thought it was going to be a good deal for me, but at the end of the day, you get traded for a Hall of Famer. Uh, you know, it's still about whether or not you can put numbers up. Yeah. So I also read that approximately three weeks before the trade, there was a game, you're, play, you're, you're on second base, and Wade Boggs is at the plate, and it's a one-run game, and you get thrown out trying to steal third base in a one-run game to end the game. Do you think that had an impact in you getting traded to the White Sox? Indeed it did. But this is your first research mistake, I believe, because I believe that game was in early May. Okay, and it was in Milwaukee. There was I, I don't want to go into this story because it gets too long. But there were so many aspects of that game where it actually helped us win the game and other things that went wrong in that game. But yes, it was a stupid play on my part, and I have a reason why I did it too. And Marty Barrett 
who's one of the smartest players in the game, will corroborate this story, even though he doesn't want to. Mark Clear was pitching, and he pitched with us the year before. And I think there was like 43 straight stolen bases against him because he was so slow to the plate. But once he got to Milwaukee, they fixed his windup, and they speeded him up. Now, Boggs was at the plate, hitting 400 at the time, first and second. We're getting beat 7-5, to five, ninth inning. Two outs in the ninth inning, of which I had singled to get on. And then Marty Barrett walked, I think. And so what Marty was thinking, we know that Wade isn't going to try to hit a home run. Mm -hmm. He's going to try to hit a single. So Marty was thinking, if we pull off a double steal and Steve's on third and I'm on second, single ties the game, right? The guy's hitting 400. So Marty whispers to me from 90 feet away, hey, Steve, (laughs) if you get a good jump, go. Whispers. Yes. Hey. Now I'm thinking two outs. But I didn't, st- I, you know, my mistake, number one, you know, you don't get the third out at third base. But I didn't stop and think how bad it would be if I got caught. And so I had a decent lead. I thought it would be, you know, I thought I had a pretty good jump, and I went. Now, Boggs hits left-handed, so it's an easy throw for the catcher to third. Rick Cerrone was the catcher. He threw the ball. It couldn't have been more on top of the base. He threw the ball right there. And it was still a bang-bang play. It was close. But had the throw been a foot away, a different one, I'd have been safe. But it wasn't. It was it threw the ball right on the base. They tagged me. I was out. And when I looked up, I'm looking into the third-base dugout, and all I see is John McNamara, my manager, looking at me like, what? WTH, yeah. you know? Yeah. A WTF, I guess it would yeah. be. And I stayed out there for the longest time. I sat on the bench. You're scared to go inside. I was scared to go on. As soon as I, as soon as, finally, a bat boy came down and said, "Hey, they want to see you upstairs." And when That's I came the up there, walk of shame. McNamara said, "Just keep walking right into my effing office." He fined me three hundred dollars, which was a lot at that time, and then didn't play me, which is an odd punishment because you're not going to get better if you're sitting on the bench, right? right. It's an odd punishment. Yeah. And then Don Baylor. Who's massive? God rest his soul. Great guy. Great team. Loved on Baylor. He came over to me, and he said, and I thought, and you know, I'm sitting at my, I'm sitting at my locker, and I was always easy to talk to with the media, mm-hmm. but I snapped that day, and because uh, I was upset, I knew I'd made a mistake, and when the, I had nothing to say, I couldn't defend myself. So when the media came over to talk to me, and there's you know, in Boston media is a joke, and yeah. it was way worse then than it is now. And there's 10, 15 riders there. I just spun my chair around, and I looked up at all of them, and I said, write whatever the fuck you want. I fucked up. And then they left, and then Don Baylor came over to me, and he put his arm around me, and I thought he was going to console me. And he said to me, <laughs> he said, he said, if you ever try to steal third base when I'm hitting, I'll fucking kill you. That <laughs> <laughs> was the greatest. And then I got traded. Like, and then you, get, you know, well, it was probably a month and a half later. So the general manager of the Chicago White Sox at the time was Ken Hawk Harrelson. The put it on the board. Yes. He was the GM at the time. First he, trade he ever made. And, and this was his quote. He said, about you, I've liked him since he came into professional baseball. The only reason we were able to get him is that Boston is in a division race. Steve called me and said he was very happy with the trade. He liked the Red Sox organization, but he wasn't playing. He has a certain air about him. He's a little cocky, and I like that. He has a lot of tools. Goes back to the confidence. Yeah, I guess so. That was weird because that's what – and I thought I would – I thought I would – well, it didn't work out there, obviously. I mean, I I was there for five years, and then he – 
I don't know how long Hawk was there. That was the very first move he ever made. But I wasn't, I wasn't playing very much. What happened was I thought I was going to be playing for Tony La Russa. Well, right around that same time, uh, two days before, two days after, they fired La Russa. Yep. So I thought, so then Jim Fricosi came in, and he literally didn't know who I was. Had no idea what position I played, nothing. So I was screwed right away. They tried me at third base for a while, but, you know, I got a couple games. I didn't hit right away. Next thing you know, I'm sitting back on the bench. Um, and then the funniest thing is, I don't know if they had this quote again because I never, I've never saw that quote. I never knew that. It was in Sports Illustrated. That's awesome. I think that's where I found it. Well, you, again, on top of your research, you find the quote when I left. When they traded me, or when they released me, they released me in 1990, I think, because Charlie Huff was coming off the DL, and um, I think I who was uh, I guess Jeff Torborg would have been the manager, but I think I guess Hawk Harrelson was still around. Or, uh, oh, no, you know what happened? I'm confusing my stories. They sent me down. I was there for a little while, then they sent me down to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Which and, we're going to talk about in a moment, but continue and your story. Grossi was the manager, didn't know who I was, sent me down, and they asked him what they thought of me, and he said, do you know? He's good at TV interviews. He's, the best thing he does is TV interviews. <laughs> You yeah. know what? That's not nice. <laughs> right. That's mean. Oh, he plays first that base, third base, center field. What does he do best? TV interviews is what Great. he does best. That's not nice. And, I, and Fregosi, you know, again, God rest his soul, he's dead. You know, he had managed before, I think, but he became a way better manager later in his managing career. Mm-hmm. When I played for him, you know, sorry I'm saying bad things, but, you know, bad things happen. He said bad things about me. You know, it was like he never, ever did anything wrong in his playing career. You know, it was like if you made a mistake, he was kind of like all over you. Not to your face, but like everybody on the bench. Well, I wasn't playing very much, so I heard what he said about everybody else. Mm-hmm. So I just knew when I was playing, if I made a mistake, what was being said about me. I think he got smarter. I think he got to be a better manager when he got to, got to the Phillies yeah. and was managing there. But, yeah, that wasn't really a nice thing to say. So 1987, you get optioned to the minor leagues, but not any minor league. You're playing for the Hawaii Islanders in the Pacific Coast League. What is it like playing minor league baseball in Honolulu, Hawaii? Honolulu is great. Playing baseball in Hawaii sucks <laughs> because what you do is you, you'll you have two teams come in and you'll play your entire seven-game series against that team. Usually they play like three or four at mm-hmm. home, three or four at their place. Or, or actually, you know, 14 games. You'll play seven at home, seven at their place. But because you're in Hawaii, they're going to come. There, they're only coming there once, so they're going to play all seven of your home. So you games have a seven-game series against the same team. Yes, and then the next team comes in. So you have 14-day home stands and then 14-day road trips where you go to four cities. Oh. The worst part about the home games are if you're hitting pretty well, you play in the first one or two games of that series against that team. You're not going to hit well forever. So they kind of start to figure out. And they're like, oh. Dude can't hit a curveball. Yeah. Well, now all you see is curveball for five more games. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And if you're going bad against the team and they come in and they're playing seven games and they throw you a couple curveballs or sliders and you're not hitting them, they just keep burying you for seven games. They're not going to throw you a fastball because you haven't shown them you can hit anything else. Yeah. Then you go on the road, you bang out four, four different cities, and usually you take a red eye out of mm-hmm. uh, Hawaii and you land at 8 in the morning you land at five in the morning in LA, and then you fly, and then your flight at eight o'clock in the morning is to Salt Lake. You land in Salt Lake at 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 one in the afternoon, and you got a seven o'clock game. And you got a game. Yeah, so it you was got a game it was brutal, night. but Hawaii was nice. We had a nice routine. Went to the beach every day. 
You Had played long. at the University of Hawaii Stadium, is that right? Yeah, Aloha, that, Aloha Stadium. That was the last year of minor league baseball in, in Hawaii. We we tore it down. Yeah, you were. You, they they were uh, according to the reports. Uh, they were hemorrhaging money. They were un, a lot of unpaid bills. No crowd. Uh, the attendance. What when it first started in the seventies and early eighties, it was great, and then uh, attendance was horrible. They were the Pirates minor league system for a while, yep. then the White Sox, and then uh, one game we had there. Um, our 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 manager and our pitching coach got in a car accident on the way to the game, so they couldn't make it. They were minor injuries, but they were both in the hospital. So who manages? Uh, Steve Lyons? T- t- close. It was managed by com- committee, but Tommy Thompson was our catcher who I loved, and I lived with him. What we did is we, we would live we lived two guys in an outrigger surf hotel. There's an outriggers. There's like seven of them in Honolulu. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, they're charging us like $44 a night. It's 22 bucks a guy. We'd live there, and then we'd check out when we left. Yeah. And, uh, and it, was, it, was, it, was, you know, it was awesome to be there. And then, so Tommy, so I said, Tommy, you can't, you can't catch tonight. You got to manage the first game. We had a doubleheader. You got to manage the first game. And and in that first game, uh, we, we were getting beat like two to one late. He's coaching third base as the manager. Calls timeout. Inserts himself to squeeze play <laughs> to tie the game, and we end up winning it. <laughs> he drops down a bun. And the, the funny thing about Tommy is like he hated me. He loved me, but he hated me because he caught all these games he caught double headers mm-hmm. he was our only catcher and nobody else we had this kid that they called up from like a ball um glenn mcelroy loved the kid and we let him hang out we bought him lunch every day because he wasn't making any money they called him up from a ball but they went down think they gave him a raise just a backup catcher and uh then um so tommy comes in drops down the bunt and tommy hated me because we'd do double headers and i'm like we're going out tonight He's like, no, we're not. I'm dead tired. I'm like, you're going out. We're going. He drank. I didn't. So I was, yeah. was fine. The um, I would think that the home field advantage would be amazing for a, a team in Hawaii because everyone's like, oh, sweet. We're here for a week. It's vacation time. Everyone's wives and girlfriends. We're going to the beach. We're going to go surfing. I would think you would have an, an amazing home field advantage. Maybe. I can't really remember. I ended up being there for six weeks. And then I got called back up, and and it was really it was a, a it was a blessing because the White Sox had a, a third baseman that they really wanted to do well. His name was Tim Hewlett. Okay. And when I went down to Hawaii, Timmy somehow I don't know what he fell on his face. He all of a sudden just went south. And then when I got called back up six weeks later, it was like uh, oh actually it was the next year. Uh, again, I'm confusing my stories. It was the next season I got sent to Hawaii. I was there for six weeks. I tore up spring training. I had the best spring training of my life and got sent down anyway. I'm looking at Fergosi going, what, I didn't play well enough to make this team? Right. I led all of baseball in average. All I hit like 450. And they tried to make me look bad. I went on every trip. I played in every B game. I had a million at-bats. And I, hit, you know, I led all of baseball. And they sent me down. But then Timmy had a bad year, so I got called up. And in 19, I think, 89, I hit like 280 playing third base f- for that team. But... Um, it wasn't you, – you can tell me where the best home field advantage of any minor league stadium. Las Vegas. Bang. When you went to Las Vegas is when you were in trouble. If you yeah. played in Las Vegas, you were you, – you know, you, you, you learned after losing three paychecks that you should stay out of the casinos <laughs> and let the visitors come in and lose their paychecks there. 
the worst trade in baseball history, and uh, no disrespect to the city of Colorado Springs, Colorado, but the Hawaii Islanders moved to Colorado Springs. I love Colorado Springs. It is phenomenal. It is a great place to visit. It's just not a good place for baseball, especially in April and May. Hawaii Islanders moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado. That's the worst trade in baseball history. Well, okay, so, so the Islanders organization moved to Colorado Springs. The White Sox organization moved to Vancouver. Yep. And so we were still bad. when The whole time I played in the White Sox, we were a terrible team. But Vancouver was a great place mm-hmm. to play baseball. I never played. I played there as a visitor one series, three games. But we would have guys getting called up. They didn't want to come. They said, Vancouver is awesome. <laughs> they were like, the most beautiful women we've ever seen are in this town. People come to our games. We're killing it down here. And we're coming up to the White Sox. You guys are like, what? We're, we're, we're in May, and you guys are already 20 games out? There's 12,000 people, maybe, yeah, who are coming to freezing. Old Comiskey. Of course, you know, Vancouver is freezing, too. But, yeah. I mean, it was the weirdest thing. We'd talk to guys that were like, I didn't really want to get called. Yeah. So, I, I look, I spent six years now at AAA, and you, you definitely see a, a large range of players who get sit down to the minor leagues and some of them they have the good attitude and some of them are just salty and angry and bitter uh, at the world and take it out on everybody I think it was four or five different years that you were sent down to the minor leagues what I thought so God, um, I can barely like see my computer lot. screen um, sounds like a lot um, maybe those were injury rehab assignments and, no and because of never the, hurt and because of the Sun um, I can't see my computer screen very well um, anyways the point is the question is did you consciously think I'm going to act this way when I'm back in the minor leagues? Um, or were you just, I'm mad, I'm here, and whatever? Yeah, I'm mad, I'm here, and I'm going to use that to get back. Okay. I, I certainly didn't try to big league anybody. Um, uh, again, Tommy Thompson in Albuquerque one time. Really? Yeah, this is great. This is a good story for you. In Albuquerque... You know, they basically said, we're sending you out, and, you know, when a spot opens up, you'll be back. And I'm pretty sure, okay, you're going to have to check so many of your facts because everything I'm telling you is a big, fat lie. <laughs> but I'm, I'm pretty sure, I can't remember who got sent up. I'm in Albuquerque, and they had a spot. Someone got hurt, and I should have gotten called back up. But I didn't. And uh, oh, I was pissed. I was like, How, what, you said I was going to come back up? And I didn't. And we're in Albuquerque in the summer. What's the temperature like in Albuquerque in the 95 summer? 95 to 105. Exactly. Tommy Thompson, again, you know, one of my best friends in the minor leagues when we played together. He said, And he knew it. He felt it. He knew what was going on. He's like, put your rubber top on. Remember back, back then in like the 80s, they had those rubber Mizuno tops? Mm-hmm. He goes, put your rubber top on. We're going for a run. We're going for a run. A run. Albuquerque. But this is, this is like a... This is like a uh, two in the afternoon, we're at the ballpark. He goes, we're going to go for a run. Let's go. So we went out and we ran like three miles. I've never sweated more in my life. And it's 5,200 feet elevation. Yeah, and, yeah. so we're, we're sweating. We can't breathe. We're not doing it. We, we finally get back. And he's like, dude, I know you should be back there. You know you should be back there. Don't let me down here. That's all I needed to hear. And then we went out and I played the game. I don't know what I did in that game that night. But it was like every once in a while you need one of your teammates to kick you in the ass. That's a, Tommy was that guy. That's a really good teammate. And, and out of all the times that we've worked uh, doing like Dodger talk and different like talk shows, one of the things that stands out to me is that you've said this many times. The worst thing you can say about somebody is that they're a bad teammate. Right. But the best thing you can say about somebody is that they're a good teammate? Absolutely. I mean, 
and and I I hope that I always was to the guys that I played with. I mean, you gravitate towards certain people no matter what you do. Like you and I were like fast friends, you know, doing what we did. And all all I wanted to do was like be able to help you if I could. And you know, you bounce some stuff off of me. You know, we were good for each other, I think. And yeah, Tommy was Tommy was great. Tommy should still be in baseball, actually. And he was for a little while with the White Sox organization. And we've actually lost touch. But this show right here will motivate me to find him again. Okay. All right, so we've been talking for over an hour now, and I've yet to bring up the day that you are most remembered for. The day was a Monday. It was July 16, 1990. The Chicago White Sox were playing the Detroit Tigers at Old Tiger Stadium. Jack McDowell against Dan Petrie. A very young Sammy Sosa batted eighth and played right field that day. Yeah. You played first base. You batted sixth. 14,470 fans was the announced attendance. You batted in the second inning. You struck out. (laughs) That sounds about right. (laughs) And then in the fifth inning, you reached safely on a bunt single. Patented. Steve Lyons head first slide. Dan Petrie is upset with the call. He's arguing with the first base umpire, Jim Evans. And during the discussion between Dan Petrie and the first base umpire, you forget where you're at. Yep. Who was the first baseman? Uh, I don't have this written down. Let me think. The Tigers 1990. Cecil Fielder. Bang! That is awesome right there by you. Cecil Fielder. Yeah. It was a great argument there. You know why? Because Dan Petrie was right. I was out. You were out. Yeah, I slid. I knew I was out. He called me safe. And doesn't happen very often, but that was really the reason I did it. Now with replay, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, everyone says it's faster if you run through it. But we were having this debate last year when I was working for Ness in, in Boston. There are some reports out there that say that the momentum of you lunging towards first base in a dive, if you do it correctly, could be faster than running through Interesting. it. Interesting. Yeah. And the other thing is, like Dwight Evans used to say to me, he's like, if it's always faster if you run through something that you're trying to get to, why do outfielders dive for baseballs? That's a good point, too. Why do you dive for it? I guess it's because you want to get lower to the ground where it's going to yeah. end up being. But anyway, I did it because I didn't get that many hits, and I was so happy if I could get a hit. And if I hit it like a weak ground ball at a shortstop and I thought I could beat it out, you see the base. You know, you're 40 feet from the base, and then you're 30 and then 20, and you see it, you see it there. You want to be safe so bad that you just lunge for it. That's why I did it. But I was out that day, and... Petrie was arguing with the umpire. Dan Evans, I think, was the umpire. And and I was just standing there listening to them, but I could feel all this dirt running down the inside of my pants. And it's not comfortable, but usually what happens when you slide head first, 50% of the time you're out. So you run back to the dugout, you go up the dugout steps, and you pull your pants down and you get the dirt out. In this case, I just brain cramped. I just didn't. I just forgot I was standing there. I was listening to these guys. There was a lot of f bombs going back and forth. How could you call him safe? I beat him there. There's no way. And I just forgot. And I yanked my pants down to get the dirt out. And then kind of realized and yanked it back up. Hurt my back when I did that. You know, I didn't realize that until the next day either. But uh, to be fair, you were wearing sliding pants underneath. I it's was. not like you were wearing your. It's not like you were showing your junk. What was the big uproar? What was the big deal? Well, you know, we had a guy that threw a, a no-hitter like six days before that. Melito Perez. You're on 
fire, bro. I remember Melito Perez. Yeah. I bought a lot of Melito Perez rookie baseball cards thinking I was going to get rich one day. No, Not happen. No, nobody talked to him. I did. I, I, I was trying to count. I think I did 37 radio shows the next morning. You could have said no. I, I guess I could. <laughs> you well, didn't best, have to do all 37. Best thing I do is radio interviews. Yeah. And then uh, I did I did seven live newscasts at the stadium the next day. It was like a it was like a playoff game. Everyone that wanted to talk to me about that. It wasn't. It just didn't seem like that big a deal at the time. But I can tell you now, and I realize this. I, I'm pretty realistic about who I am in most cases. It was the smartest thing I ever did. Nobody would know who I am had that not happened. Somebody asked me about it every day of my life since, and it happened in 1990. It's a long time ago. It was literally. You know, would I rather be known for a, a Game 7 big home run? Absolutely, wouldn't we all? But like Reggie used to say, even bad publicity is good publicity, but some publicity to keep your name out there is better than nothing. What would your parents say about that? Wow, I think my dad said, what were you thinking? And I said, nothing. <laughs> Clearly nothing. Um, a lot of people asked me if I was embarrassed but I really wasn't embarrassed because I had a nice ass back then. I got, I got to tell you, come on, man! I was in the prime of my life, and people and, and and the the people that I think are very strange are the people that asked me if I did it on purpose. Yes. Yeah, so the the Sports Illustrated article that came out probably within a week or two after that, there were some people who wondered if you did it on purpose. What 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 purpose would it serve if I did it on purpose? Um, I guess at the end of the day, I'd be a marketing genius if I did it on purpose because of what it's done for me later. But no, absolutely not. I mean, I was a crazy, fun, off-the-wall guy, but I still had tremendous respect for the game and the way it was played. And I tried to play it the right way. And I, I, don't, I don't think anybody could tell me that I didn't. And for me to do like a stunt, not my style, not, not what I'd want to do and not clearly not what happened and if anyone's everybody's seen the video it's been viewed a million times on youtube or whatever uh the look on my face when i pull my pants up is obvious yes. that i didn't know what the hell I there, was there's doing. no way that you could fake that reaction yeah because the look on your face is oh my gosh <laughs> i cannot believe what i just did you know the greatest thing about that is that I don't remember who the next hitter was. And and you just named off all the stats. What the hell was I doing hitting sixth? I'm not that good. <laughs> we really sucked. <laughs> that was a bad team with me hitting You're sixth. playing first base, too. Oh, my God. Well, that Where's was Greg Walker, those, right? Oh, that's Where's a Greg bad Walker? story, too. Greg got sick. He had this weird seizure on the field. Really? And, yeah, he, and he got sick, and he missed, like, he missed a big portion of the season because he's fine now. He's great. Greg Walker's a great guy. He was a great teammate, too. And, uh, yeah, he got sick. So I ended up playing a lot of first base right before then Frank Thomas came in. Mm -hmm. And I handed over the reins to him, of which he never gave them back. But, yeah, Greg was sick, so I was playing first. But I have no idea why I was playing first. I used to tell everybody, I was like, you know, I was grateful. I, I loved playing for the Red Sox. I feel like the Red Sox are my baseball home. But I got a much greater opportunity to play for the White Sox because we weren't a very good team. And I, I always used to say, if you know, if, if I'm your opening day second baseman, we're not winning nothing. <laughs> you know, and let's see, we're not a good team. Your daughters were 12 and five at the time. I would think that the five-year-old, it, it took a while before she realized what happened. But with, like 
did anyone at school say to like your daughter, like, Hey, your dad pulled his pants down on TV or like, did she ever ask you like, Hey, like what, what was this that people talking about at school? I can't remember a, a lot about what their reaction is. All I know is that at this point in time, I spent two days during the World Series this year when uh, when Boston was playing uh, the Dodgers, and my oldest daughter Kristen, who's now soon to be forty one, came with her boyfriend, and we had a great time at the games. And I would say that even more so, my younger daughter, who was soon to be thirty five, uh, is even a bigger baseball fan and relates even more closely to my life and my career and, and baseball in general. They're still big fans and, and everything. So I'm, I don't think it affected them at all. I like to think that they were strong enough to like ward off any jerk that was like, Hey, your dad's an idiot. Yeah. And so, yeah, there was no big uproar about it at all. So I think they handled it. Okay. Playgirl invited you, <laughs> gave you an opportunity, right? <laughs> yes. And you said no. <laughs> yes. Because of the two daughters. Because of the two daughters. Yeah, I was like... And uh, that also proves that you didn't do it on purpose. Because if you had done it on purpose, you would have taken the money from Playgirl. Yeah, which is which is really weird. I mean, is Playgirl still in existence? I don't know. And if I did, I probably wouldn't admit that I know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously that was more of like a, 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 a you know, an alternative magazine, <laughs> to say the least, I guess, at the time. Yeah, they did. They did. They said. They said. How much money did they offer you? Do you remember? We we never got to that point because I turned them down flat. I was like, "Look, you know, I I I can't do that. I have two children, two girls, so that's never going to happen." But it was it was kind of flat. It was a flattering offer, I guess. I did. I got offered to go on Johnny Carson at the time, which was like a a big deal. And And David Letterman. You said no. I didn't say no. But what happens? What happened was I'm playing in Chicago. Letterman's in New York. Johnny Carson's in L.A. They only will get you if you're in town. Right, yeah. And we weren't going to New York for about three weeks, and I think we had already done playing Anaheim. And, you know, obviously I'm playing baseball every night, so I'm not flying, I'm not missing a game to fly out there and do it. And so basically the Letterman people told me, which was the correct thing to say, by the time you get here, it'll be old news. And they were right. Yeah. But Len Berman, who was the old-time sports Lynn. guy... He brought the clip when he was on the Letterman show. Stole your thunder. Say, yeah, he did. He said, you know, he said, "Hey, there's some funny things that happened." Like a week later, he came in and he was on the show and brought the clip. Yeah, always, always right there, but not quite getting it. That's my life. Uh, let's talk about baseball. Takes itself very serious, especially the old guard. The old guard, whether they are writers or broadcasters or players or executives or fans. They must protect the sanctity of baseball. You had fun. You played tic-tac-toe in the infield with other infielders, right? I did. You understood that. Explain to me why you played tic-tac-toe. I, I played tic-tac-toe because of Jamie Quirk, who was a mm-hmm. longtime coach with the— Mostly a catcher, though. Yeah, utility catcher guy, uh, longtime coach with the Kansas City Royals. I think he's retired. He kept telling me he was going to retire to watch his kids do grow up. But then he kept coming back. I think he might be done now. He told me that he did that in the minor leagues. What I used to do is write write notes in the dirt. Mm-hmm. I would say, hey, how are you, in the dirt, and wait for the second baseman to come out and say, good, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then he taught me about He said, you know, I used to play tic-tac-toe. 
And I'm like, that is brilliant. I said, you don't have to tell me anymore. So I started playing tic-tac-toe with everybody. Um, and everybody played along except uh, two guys. And right now I can't remember. One was the first baseman for the Orioles, big guy. can't think of his name. Not right Eddie now. Murray. No, 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 no. Way after that. Okay. Um, Last name started with an M. Randy Milligan? Randy Milligan. And not to be disparaging, but I was like, you don't know how to play? I mean, why, why, why wouldn't you play? I already put, I already put He's my... He's probably trying to be, like, serious. I guess. But it was like, you know, my tic-tac-toe board was after, you know, after you run down the line and you're trying to beat out a ball and you hit first base and you run, like, 20 more feet past first base? That's where my tic-tac-toe board was. Right on the line, 20 feet down the line, big. Mm-hmm. And... I, and, and, and I was a gracious host. I never took X's. I was always O's. Okay. And I never put my O in the center spot. I was always on a corner, giving you a chance. Mm-hmm. I always won because I cheated at the end. I'd always put two O's in at the end when I got close by the fifth inning. You had to get done by the fifth because they come and drag the field. Yes, they do. But Milligan didn't play with me. Again, awesome memory by you, Randy Milligan. These are all of my baseball cards. Oh, my God. And I was thinking, did he not know how to play? Or he just didn't want to play? What, what, what are we talking about here? I, I read some story where you, uh, I think it was Harold Reynolds, where you wrote, like, on the dirt, like, can you get a ball here? And then, like, the next inning yeah. he did, and he wrote, yep. It was so awesome. And, you know, I grew up with Harold and you know, in, in Oregon. And I'm playing my regular second base, and I was just screwing around. And I wrote, can you get to this ball? And then I drew a long line way up the middle, literally on the other side of second base. And then the next inning, I don't know who hit it, but he hit a ground ball hard up the middle. And Harold, like, went way up the middle, dove for it, stood up, threw the guy out. And then and then I come back there, and right next to where he caught the ball, I was like, yep. <laughs> Are you kidding me? And then I played with, uh, oh, Louie. You're better at this. You know, I'm old now, man. I'm, I'm, I'm Alzheimer's. Played with him in the minor leagues in Boston. He's He's been a coach for a little while. Louis, he played third base for the Cleveland Indians for a little while, but not like kind of after they were good. Louis, Louis, anyway, he hit a home run against us. And I was playing third base for whoever I was playing for. And then I wrote in the dirt, no moss home runs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he didn't write anything, but when he got out there, I was sitting at the dugout, and I was uh-huh. watching him, and he read it, and he looked up, and he looked at me in the dugout, and he started laughing. <laughs> I was like, no, no more of those. You you enjoyed baseball. You like you had fun. What, how, do you think that if you had been an everyday player for, ten, for your entire career, that you would have still had as much fun? Yeah, I, I really do. I think I would have because I think the game needs it, but – you know, again, I'm a little bit of an enigma. I, I, I consider myself old-school baseball. I respect the game. I think there's a way to play it. But I'm, I've always wanted to have some fun. I think it, you know, the game should be speeded up. The game should, should lend itself to more fun. You should laugh a little bit more. But it's a double-edged sword. You know, some of the fans don't want you to have more fun, too, because as soon as you do, they're like, hey, are you not being serious about the game? Well, you're getting paid millions of dollars. We need you to get three hits. You know, but then in the next breath, they're like, oh, can you sign this? Yeah. Well, I, I need to get ready to play right now. Yeah. That's why I can't sign this right now. I, I need to go make my money. I yeah. need to go do what I'm supposed to do or else I'll be back in the minor leagues. So there's, a, there's an even balance that, that needs to be figured out 
in the game, but I do love the way most of the game is headed. Much more fun. There's, you know, guys are showing their personality a little bit more. I, I, I do like that, but I'm still old school about the way the game itself should be played. Who gave you the name Psycho? Mark Sullivan. Once again, Mark Sullivan getting a lot yeah, of shout-outs today. Yeah, Mark, uh, I love Mark. Great did guy you too. initially like the nickname? Uh, I think it fit. You know, when you I were heard, in the minor leagues, right? Yeah, yeah, minor leagues. Yeah, we were in Double A. And you know, the funny thing is, Mark, Mark, way more psycho than me. Okay, way worse temper. And my my nickname comes from a bad place, sort of. But I hope it was always taken in a good way. I, you know, I had a bad temper, and I, I, my in my whole life, my whole career, I've been disappointed about that temper. I was, I didn't have very good self control. If I made it out, I, I would, you know, I was, I was throwing my helmet. I'd throw my bat down. I was a bitch. You know, I was a little baby. And uh, my dad called me one time, and he made a lot of sense, but I still didn't take it to heart for some reason. He said, look, he goes, you're not a great player. He goes, if you get 600 at-bats one year, you're going to make 400 outs. You're going to throw your helmet every time? And I was thinking about that. I was like, yeah, that kind of makes me look pretty stupid doesn't it and uh he said you know you're really not that good so you know don't what's the point of it and it made a lot of sense but i still didn't change that much i see the players of today who have much greater self-control you very see rarely see a guy snap although sometimes you would love it Mm -hmm. we snapped way back in the 80s way more uh quick interjection i think it's because of the proliferation of cameras I suppose, but we still knew there were cameras on us. I mean, every time I grounded out, I would run. I'd run down the line. I'd run, you know, ten feet past the line, third out. Take my helmet and bang, slam it on the ground. And then, as an arrogant prick, let the first base coach go pick it up. What kind of guy does that? That's not who I was, but I did that. And then the first base coach had to walk over and pick my helmet up while I would like kind of stroll back out to left field or whatever and wait for the guys to bring my glove and my and my hat to me while I went out to play defense. That's just wrong. That's you know it was it was it was a character flaw, and I did it. And to admit it's not easy, but it it, it happened. You just don't see guys doing that anymore. And you know other people could say, well, shoot, they make so much money, they don't really care if they ground out anymore. Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. They do care. Yeah. You know, you, you cared long before you made the big cash, and that doesn't go away. That's one of the things I've always liked about you is that you're very honest to a fault and that you'll like admit that, no, I did this, I'm not proud yeah, of it. Well, well, yeah, once this podcast hits the air, you're actually going to get fired. <laughs> They're going to be like, what, who are you having on the <laughs> Who's doing this? Well, that's the beauty of having your own podcast is that no one's hiring me to do it, and I'm not getting paid. I do remember, I don't know if I ever told you this, but the first time that we worked together in L.A., it was probably Josh Cumming uh, who said this to me. And I was like, okay, you know, it's, you know, you're working with Steve. And they're like, okay, no, I'm excited. And Josh said, okay, you realize the number one most important thing that you need to do. And I'm thinking, like, oh, you know, like, like you know, coming in at a commercial break or this or that. He's like, no, don't let Steve get fired. Yeah, make sure <laughs> Steve doesn't say fuck on the air. <laughs> don't let Steve say something that's going to get him fired. That's your number one job when you work with Steve. It's the funniest thing because because of, I think, my, you know, a little bit off the wall reputation and my propensity to be a little bit crazy, people generally don't think that I – think before I do anything. And sometimes I don't, I guess, but most of the time I've figured it out. I mean, I really believe that I would get fired for saying a bad word on, on TV. I've never done it. 
in real life, I use bad language more than I should probably, but never had a problem with that on the air. I've, I've gotten fired for things uh, that are, are so professionally damning and hurtful and so not who I am. So crazy. The, the bad things that have happened to me in my life are just not even close to the person that I am. And the people that do know me would look at it like, really? You know, we, we sometimes try to laugh about it, even though it's really hard for me to laugh at it at times because it was so serious and so hurtful and, and professionally uh, damaging. Um, but, I, you know, I, I sleep well at night knowing that I was like, that's not who I am. People know that that's not me. Overall, you played parts of nine years in the major leagues, 853 games, 2,162 at-bats, Red Sox, Braves, Expos, White Sox, 252 career average. You you make fun of your your career quite a bit, but what are you, seriously, what are you most proud of? I think the fact that, you know, I think there's there's some discrepancy in my average, too. Some people say 264. Some people say 252. See, 52 heard, is according to baseball reference. I know, which is probably the Bible. Yeah. But I have hit, I've heard 264, too, which I like a lot better. Okay. <laughs> which both, they both stink. But at the same time, when, when you're a utility guy and you sit on the bench for the most part, and the only time you do get to play is against the other team's ace, 252, not too bad. Especially when you you know you're, uh, I bounced around, and played a different position anytime. So it wasn't like I, if I was going to play, I played left field, knew where I was going. I, I might be anywhere. I was proud of the ability to do that, but at the same time, it takes a lot more work. And you know, to know that I hung around nine years for at least four organizations, knowing that if they called on me, I could try to get the job done you you know baseball is a game where you're not always going to get the job done it's built mostly on failure than more than success so very proud of the overall career that i made it i was supposed to be selling women's shoes my whole life i was not the guy that was supposed to make it to the big leagues i didn't even think i was going to make it to the big leagues when i was playing in triple a really yeah even though you were first round pick and you're at triple a and you didn't think Maybe when I finally got to AAA, I was like, wow, you know, if someone gets hurt, I, I might be the next guy that they call up. These days, most of the guys come from AA. That wasn't the way it was when I played. You know, AA, you're just fighting your way. Once you get to AAA, now you're knocking on the door, and that's where all the prospects were, and that's where everyone came from. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I never actually believed I was going to get to the big leagues until I did. All right, so we're going to close this off by um, I'm going to give you Come on, you have 15 better questions to ask me. I've, I, dude, we, we, we could do 15-part <laughs> series on Steve Lanes and his career. Um, okay, so I'm going to give you four things, four industries that you have done at some point in your life. And I want you to rank them from easiest to most difficult. Okay? The four industries, in no particular order, Major League Baseball player, Major League Baseball broadcaster, model, and actor. <laughs> Where'd the model come from? <laughs> There's photos that sure look like you were modeling. Let's go. <laughs> we what is the easiest to hardest? We got to talk to my grandson about the modeling. That's what he's doing. In fact, as we speak, he's on a flight to Paris to go uh, to go uh, to go model in Paris. So that maybe he could tell you. It's so playing, broadcasting, modeling, acting. All right. Um, easiest to hardest. All right. Easiest is. Uh, 
I'm, see, I'm going to have stupid answers to this. I'll say, uh, easiest is broadcasting. Okay, you know what? I, I should rephrase this. Not necessarily easiest to do or hardest to do, but hardest for someone to hire you. Get into? Okay. To get into is All the right. better phrasing of the question. All right, so I went from broadcasting being easiest to say that I would say it was either like neck and neck. You know, the modeling thing is like throwing me off. Modeling is the hardest thing because, number one, I'm not that good a looking guy. You know, so I almost have to throw modeling out of it because I wouldn't consider myself a model. I, <laughs> nobody would hire me. So that's pretty hard. <laughs> if you can't get a gig, you know, that's, a, that's a hard, right? Um, the broadcasting thing was hard. I, I, I knew I had something to say. But I didn't think anyone would hire me because I wasn't a good player. You know, your average player, your nickname psycho, kind of crazy off the wall guy. You have to open some doors for yourself. So that was hard. Once I got in, I knew I could do it. I knew I had something to say. I knew I had an opinion. I knew I could. I'm not a great enunciator. I'm, I'm a good communicator. I'm not a good speaker. I'm a good communicator. So I could get my point across. I knew what I wanted to say. So getting in the door hard after you're there. I knew that I, I think I'm an asset. Mm-hmm. Any, if you want to hire me, anyone wants to hire me, I will be an asset to your company because I'll work my butt off. I will do the preparation. This is my career. You know, my, my greatest time in my life was being a ball player. But my greatest preparation for post-baseball career job is being broadcaster. And I don't dabble in it because I know that there are a bunch of guys that do. You know, there's a ton of ex-players out there that, eh, I'll do 20 games, and I'll stink at it for 20 games because I'm not going to do any homework, and I don't care. But my name's, my name's blah, 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 and I'm a Hall of Famer. I don't care. Well, that's not the way the job is supposed to be done as, as far as I'm concerned. What were, what were the other ones? Um, actor. <laughs> actor. Because you were an Arliss. Oh, yeah. I was an Arliss. I was in For Love of the Game. In Major League Two. No, the weird thing is, I get a credit major league. Team, IMDb but I was never says in. you were in it. I know that's the craziest thing. I wasn't, but I was in. Uh, was there another Steve Lyons out there in the world who there was might in? Be. Who was in Major League Two? I get, I get. Uh, I Do you get, get a check from it? I don't get a check from it. <laughs> I get check from VIP, which was uh, Pamela Anderson's show. Okay, I did one of hers. I was in Arliss a couple times. I did for love of the game with Vince Scully. I was the last person ever to work with Vince Scully. How awesome is that? Were you guys in the same room at the same time, or was Indeed, it separate? Indeed, no. We were right there next to each other. Oh, that in is fact, so cool. they gave us some um, professional courtesy because they showed us the end of the movie, and Vin and I both looked at each other and were like, I know this is Hollywood and everything, but this would never happen. They had some, you know, there was like five great plays because if you remember the story, you know, Billy Chapel is throwing a no-hitter. But then they had, like, all these great plays where it was, like, you know, one better than the next. Mm-hmm. And we were like, it, no-hitters just don't happen that way. And I said, what if you just had a play where it was a ground ball up the middle where the scene and the viewpoint from everybody else would think that, they're, oh, this is going to get – no-hitter is going to get broken up because this ball is going to run up the middle. It's going to be a base hit. And then you just have the shortstop kind of come out of nowhere. He makes the play and throws the guy out by a smidgen, and that's the end of your game. That's what they ended up doing. But it was a suggestion from us really? to have them do that. And they took out about two or three great plays that they had that were like, oh, look what happened here. There's no-hitter would never have meant. So that was cool. And working with Vin was great. 
And like I said, I'm, I'm proud, and I say it all the time. I know it wasn't a major league game, so screw all you people that are sitting there that are saying, oh, was it really working with them? Yeah, it was. I, I was the last person to do anything broadcasting-wise with Vin Scully, and it was in that movie. It's awesome. That's so cool because Vin works solo with the Dodgers uh, for the national, Forever. yeah, for the national stuff. Him and uh, Joe Gargiola, and I think him, him and Tony Kubek. So he worked with you know with an analyst, and obviously when he did football, um, he did the famous uh, the catch. He was on TV, uh, or was it, no? He was on radio. He was on radio for the catch. The uh, Joe Montana, Dwight Clark, and of uh, course Gibson's homer, and of course Gibson's homer. Yeah, that was kind of a m- uh, legendary call. Kind of. She is gone. gone. Yeah. In a season that has been so improbable, improbable. <laughs> the impossible <laughs> has happened. happened. I want to say the one time on Dodger Talk. <laughs> oh, how did I screw up? No, no, no. This is, this how is did me. I screw it up? No, this is me. Um, it was the night that the Dodgers got no hit but still won <laughs> yeah. against the Angels. And I said something along the lines of, in a season that has been so predictable... <laughs> The inevitable has happened because <laughs> they couldn't hit. Did he like it? It was like no, I didn't say that to Vin. I think I said it on the air because that was when like Andrew Jones was sucking and Juan Pierre and like they couldn't hit. And it was a miracle they made the playoffs that year. They were barely over five hundred. They couldn't hit at all in a season that has been so predictable. The inevitable has happened. You know the reason why they made the playoffs uh, those years at the end there. There, there, there were two people that were like in the three years of uh, Joe Torre. Uh, and they made the playoffs all three years. And it's my contention that it had nothing to do with Joe Torre. It had way more to do with Manny Ramirez getting traded well, to them. Who, how'd that happen? How did Manny who Ramirez made get that traded? Deal? Ned Cletty. Yes. Ned Cletty. Ned was awesome, I thought. I thought Ned was a very transparent GM. I agree. Uh, Big I, fan of Ned. I thought that, he wasn't perfect. Definitely nope. made his share of yep. personal they blunders. Do. They all do, but, you know. He brought Manny in that year. He brought John Garland and uh, Casey Blake in the next year, a couple other guys. The, the team, the three years that they made the playoffs that year, they were mediocre at the trading deadline and well on their way to not making the playoffs. They made it three straight years because of the moves that Ned made. Yeah. And, you know, and, and what I loved about Ned is you sat there with I, you and I did it all the time. Ned said, ask me a question, I'll answer the question. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Please don't, when you speak of this, don't make it look like I was the guy that was telling you that. You know, you can, you can have your opinion and mm-hmm. act like it's your opinion, but you know, so don't, don't pin me to it, but I'll tell you what's going on. Yeah. And, and I love that about him. Straight shooter. Yeah, I love Ned, too. And, uh, shoot, he's one of the reasons why I'm in Albuquerque. He called John Traub, Isotope's general manager, and recommended me for the job. And there's a lot of times I said a lot of critical things about Ned's performance on the job at, at Dodger Talk. Um, but I'd like to think that we had a, uh, either he didn't know about it, I'm pretty sure he did, <laughs> maybe he didn't, is, is that he, that, that, I, that, I, that I was critical when I needed to be critical, but I wasn't personal. Yeah, and, and fair. You know, you know, he gets it too. You know, we all know when we did something with that didn't work out, and, if, and there are certain people that their job is to make sure that people know about that. And... Hey, the funny thing is that uh, I recommended you for a shitload of jobs. You didn't get any of them. <laughs> well, we're still working on that. <laughs> I don't know if this podcast is going to help or hurt. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> this was fun, though. Gosh, like we, we could do this every day, and uh, it'd be awesome. Maybe we will. But nobody would. People future. would stop listening. Eventually. But that, but that would be the challenge for us. So uh, one, one day we'll figure out a way to do this on a more regular basis again, my friend. I'd love it. This is awesome.
Thanks for the uh, hospitality and the view of the ocean, and Happy New Year. Finish your mimosa. All right, we'll do. That's Steve <laughs> Lyons, and this is Life Around the Seams.